Hi everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal, where each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices. I'm your host, Naveen Agarwal, principal and founder at Achieve, where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. In this episode, I'm joined by Andy David, who is an expert in embedded software development, currently working in the automotive industry on a hydrogen-powered car. He also has prior experience in heavy equipment and aerospace industry. This conversation is an example of how we can learn from experts in different industries and share knowledge that we can bring back into our medical device industry. We talked about many topics related to risk management and safety, as well as standards that should be used appropriately in front of a live audience as part of a LinkedIn live audio event. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's get going with that. So thanks again for for, uh, coming on today. Brilliant. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, it's, as I said earlier, it's, it's the highlight of the end of my week. Uh, it's an absolute highlight at the end of my week. It's, uh, I'm based in UK, so it's, uh, it's a little after four o'clock in the afternoon here. So it's, it's a lovely way to round off the working week. Um, yeah, I, I saw, um, we, uh, myself and Naveen met when one of my old colleagues, John Ward, was a guest speaker. And I saw John uh, was was participating, so I thought, oh, I've got to get involved with that. Uh, John's a brilliant, fabulous guy to work with, uh, and it was great to reconnect with John. Um, as for me, my background, um, I'm an embedded software engineer. Um, I work in at the moment in automotive systems. Uh, I'm involved in a in a fantastic project developing a hydrogen powered vehicle with a very different business model. Uh, to do with uh, sale of service rather than sale of product. Um, and it really, as, as we might talk about later, it really changes how we approach the design of the car. But I started with embedded systems back in 1991 when I did an internship at IBM at Hursley Park just outside of Winchester. I think it's where they invented the Winchester disc back when everything was in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was brilliant and it really changed my life. Um, in terms of what my own perception of software was. So I was doing a bachelor's degree in computer science. Um, I got a brilliant internship at IBM and it was it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I was involved in, first of all, writing uh, an audio layer for a, a very early desktop conferencing system. Um, I don't think there was there were any desktop conferencing systems in the world at the time. Um, and this did video and uh, and audio over ISDN and token ring Ethernet and things like that. Uh, I was involved in the audio processing of that. And then later on, I was writing diagnostics for a portable terminal. Um, it was a very low-powered, ruggedized PC. Um, and and I thought, this is fun. This is It's technical. It's challenging. It's interesting. I get to work with electronics. And it was more of a systems uh, feeling. Um, and it, it, uh, it turned my life around. Later on, I did uh, a master's degree in VLSI design. And again, it was um, uh, like in terms of my professional life, it was a life-changing uh, experience. And I thought it's uh, low-level software is the place for me. 
Um, in the mid-90s, I started working in uh, hydraulics, and uh, I was part of a team developing a very novel uh, hydraulic uh, management system, uh, a flow control valve, um, and it was huge fun. And they had a, a small team of, we were all quite young engineers, and they didn't tell us how hard it was going to be. And they, they shut us in this room and said, right, come back when it's working. Um, <laughs> and we managed to pull it off. And then it was it was absolutely brilliant. And I was there for over a decade. Um, but uh, then I moved from automotive, sorry, from uh, industrial systems into aerospace. I worked on a couple of aircraft. Um, I worked on the uh, the triple seven, the Boeing triple seven uh, nose wheel steering system, and the uh, the Airbus A four hundred M military transport plane. And and from then, I sort of worked my way into automotive systems because as a boy, um, I loved cars. Um, I guess you call them we call them petrol heads here. I think in the <laughs> states you call them gear heads. And um, and I I tell you I had these things memorized. I'd get the um, the motor show guides and I'd memorize every single statistic and characteristic and my, one of my friends would would say to me things like and then what's the um what's the um the trunk capacity of a, of a mark three ford capri in <laughs> cubic feet and i'd know it and, and after all i thought i was, i spent too much time with it but but yes it's um that's that's my journey i'm a software engineer i work on embedded systems for safety critical systems and my current interests are automotive systems and um, particularly things that are sustainable uh, and deal with renewable energy. Oh, that's that's really cool and such a fascinating experience and background, um, Andy. It's 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 amazing to hear. Yeah, and I've been very lucky. Yeah. So now you're you know you're so so much into cars. This must be like a kind of dream job or dream project for you to to work on hydrogen powered cars. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, the car is um, the company is called River Simple. Um, it's the car we're building is a, a small, um, I suppose we'd call it a local car. It's not a city car. Um, it's not intended for uh, long journeys in a straight line. When you look at the uh, statistics about the kind of journeys people take, there's a huge proportion. It's something like 85% or something journeys are within a 10-mile radius of where you live. Mm-hmm. and. So we thought, okay, let's crack that problem first. Let's see what we can do, how how clean, how efficient can we make a car um, that does that job. And the, the car itself is called the Rasa, R-A-S-A, um, and it comes from the Latin phrase tabula rasa, which means clean slate. <laughs> and the founder of the company, Hugo Spowers, is, um, he, he's a genius. He's a complete genius. Um, he's... This is the most well thought through, most um, watertight set of ideas I've ever come across in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that the car is, um, we started, well, Hugo's background was that he was a classic car restorer and he has a background um, in automotive sport, in motor racing. So he was a driver, then he was a team manager, and then he had a successful business restoring classic cars. Mm-hmm. And he he got out of motor racing for environmental reasons, which is oddly odd enough because he he got into it for environmental reasons, thinking if he could demonstrate um, environmental improvements in successful racing vehicles, it would be a very quick and effective way of getting those changes into production vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, it the argument is true, it still takes too long. Um, so he 
he got out of motorsport and he got out of cars all together until he met a guy who said, have you seen these things called hydrogen fuel cells? Um, they, they take hydrogen and oxygen from the atmosphere and they produce uh, electricity and water mm-hmm. and they're quite lightweight. And, uh, and Hugo thought, oh, that's quite, that's quite interesting. And, um, and he took a piece of paper and he drew in the middle of the paper a hydrogen fuel cell and had a think and thought, well, what does the rest of the car look like? Uh-huh. And, and that was a completely novel approach. Um, there are hydrogen cars available that you can go and, uh, and get right now. There's the, the Toyota Mirai, which is brilliant. There's the, uh, the Honda Clarity, I think it's called, which will be brilliant because everything that comes out of Honda is brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, there's the Hyundai Nexo, um, and they're, they're, these are all great cars but they're from companies with a colossal legacy in making what I would call a traditional car mm-hmm. with a, a petrol or a diesel engine or latterly, of course, uh, battery electric. Um, so that's probably where they started. They, they probably took a chassis, perfectly good chassis, if you've got a big heavy power plant, and thought, how do we make this work with hydrogen? Hmm. So they started from a different stake in the ground. And, yeah. And, that's the reason I think that the River Simple, one of the reasons why the River Simple car is so different, because we we started with a fuel cell, drew the rest of the car. We didn't start with the car and then try and replace an engine with a fuel cell. So the, uh, the really noticeable cool. difference is that the yeah the uh, I think the Hyundai and the, they're all and the, the Toyota they're all around 120, 140 kilowatts um, fuel cell, but the the River Simple car is 10, 10 mm. kilowatts. Um, it's ultra lightweight. It's four wheel drive, um, and uh, and if, if I do say so, it's got some pretty smart software in it to <laughs> deal with um, with energy management. Because ten horsepower will pull the skin off a rice pudding, but only <laughs> quite slowly. It's not a great deal. I mean, to put it into context, I've got a I've got a motorbike with seventy five horsepower <laughs> um, that weighs two hundred kilos, and the River Simple car is six hundred and fifty kilos. Um, a typical car, I think the average car weight for production cars at the moment is 1,350 kilos, maybe 1,400. Mm. Um, so it's very lightweight. Wow. And, uh, but I, and I can be, I can talk, I, I, know. I could take up the whole rest but, of but the day know, just with what, the car. But, but what, what I'm hearing you say is that certain design choices are being made deliberately because of the, the, how the original vision uh, evolved, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. You are making design choices. Yeah. So, so in this context, Andy, first I want to kind of uh, talk to you about just your perspective. We talk about risk and safety in these conversations. So let's let's get yeah. back to that theme. Uh, from your view and in the context of what you are doing, how do you just think about the term risk to begin with? What does it mean to you? Well, risk for me is the potential for um, for something to happen which could lead to injury, death, or damage. Okay. Um, and w- with the with something like a hydrogen car, the obviously the obvious um, risks are, you know, people worry about hydrogen. It's a fuel. It's a chemical fuel, mm-hmm. so it likes to liberate its energy um, very very easily. In truth, it's um, fundamentally safer than a petrol car, mm-hmm. but it's uh, the perception is hydrogen is very dangerous. Well, of course it is. It's a fuel. Um, petrol is very dangerous, you know, and the conditions diesel is very dangerous, and even batteries themselves are very, very dangerous. Um, but that's the first um, obvious danger. The second is 
that you're moving people around in a box. <laughs> and sometimes you can move at speed. Um, and all it takes is for you to um, not look where you're going or <laughs> lose control. Or, but of course, there's also things that you can hit with your vehicle. Um, if you have uh, uh, something like a, an uncommanded torque. So imagine you're sitting in a car park, um, car's on, and suddenly it rolls forward without you asking it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been, in the automotive history, examples of cars doing this uh, in the past, and it's, uh, of course, a terrible thing. As a driver, there are things you can do to stop that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as engineers, there are things we can do just to make the system not do that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk is the um, it's the combination of where the car is, how it's being used. Or I'm sort of blurring myself into hazard here a bit, but risk is really the the possibility of something going wrong with the car or how you're operating it that can lead to uh, to damage or injury or death mm-hmm. or uh, some loss of money, something like that. So in this context, this this concept is very similar to how we view risk in the medical device business. At the end of the day, we are talking about sort of a safety impact in terms of the harm to the patient or the user. And you're kind of mm-hmm. thinking in, in a similar way, right? Yeah, I would, it seems that way, yes. It seems uh, so sensible. Now, another term that gets brought up is safety. So is there a difference between risk and safety? I'm sure they are related, but... How do you view the two? Well, safety is is what we do. Um, it, it's it's the activities that we perform to so that the risk is mitigated, Got so it. that the uh, the probability goes away. Uh-huh. So, if we've defined um, a hazard, uh, and a hazard is uh, a set of conditions by which uh, a risk can actual can become um, can lead to uh, injury or, or damage or death. Um, then the safety is what we do in response to that is to how how do we respond to that hazard so that there's no risk or that we ah. reduce the risk as much as practically possible. Got it, got it. So you you are viewing safety more as something that we aim to achieve through our understanding of risk and how we manage those risks. Is that right? Uh, yes. I think that's uh, in a minute. I'm going to think of why that doesn't hold water. But for now, I think yes, yeah, safety is is my response to risks that we've identified, and of course, an inherent approach. I mean, it's of course it's um, uh, it exists in our activities and in our thoughts, but it's uh, my safety concept is a direct response to the hazards ah. which I have uh, well, which which we have identified. Oh, interesting, interesting. So. Uh, I mean, we we talk about risk management in our business quite a lot with the intention of delivering safe products. And what I'm hearing you say is that safety is something you think about as doing is as a response to what your understanding of the risks are. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes, I would say so. I mean, we with the with the Raza, we. Um, uh, we did a HARA, a hazard analysis and hazard analysis and risk assessment, and we took at we looked at um, well, we looked at ways in which the car uh, the functions that it, the car performs. That was where we started. What what does the car do? It produces acceleration. It steers. It contains hydrogen. It converts energy. It, it carries a payload. Things like that. Uh, 
a list that was actually surprisingly hard to to define. Mm-hmm. Um, we took operational states of the car, uh, what it's um, what it's being subject to. Are you driving it? Um, are you parking? Are you parking inside or outside? Are you driving on a country road or a fast road? Driving at night? Is it raining? Things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And then we looked at um, status um, status of the vehicle. Um, is it stationary? Is it switched on? Is it maneuvering? Is it driving forward? Things like that. And we had these three axes, and we looked at every combination of mm-hmm. these three things, and we thought, what could, in what way could the car malfunction mm-hmm. and and produce an unsafe uh, or produce a hazard? In what way could it, a, a malfunction in any combination of those three things produce a hazard which could hurt someone? Got it. Um, and and we came up with uh, with a substantial number. And then, of course, the the functional safety um, standard that we use, ISO two six two six two, gave us guidance on how we could grade those ah. um, in terms of severity, uh, exposure, and controllability. Uh-huh. Um, and from then, that would define the uh, automotive safety integrity level, which guides us uh, with what activities we perform on certain functions on certain requirements. Uh, requirements, design, uh, implementation, verification, um, specific techniques to to help us make sure, A, we understand what we're doing, B, we understand how we're going about doing it and implementing it, and how we then demonstrate that we've achieved these objectives. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, the collection of that is our safety concept. Oh, that's that's really awesome. So guys, we're at a point where I think I'm not, I'm going to um, now, invite you guys to participate. Uh, so please uh, don't be shy. And that's the whole point of this uh, conversation is to have uh, more discussion with you. So let me know. Uh, now, when we were talking a little bit, Andy, before we uh, uh, went live, uh, you mentioned that ISO 26262, uh, it was kind of not, not a straightforward decision in your business, in your current project to uh, follow that standard. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, yes, that's right. Um, well, ISO 26262, I'll, I'll call it ISO 2.6, okay. uh, just for short. It's the the, automo- the International Automotive Functional Safety Standard for Systems, uh, Electrical and Electronic Engineering and Software Engineering. Um, in the past, um, I've done projects using um, RTCA D0178B for um, aerospace systems and uh, IEC 61508 for uh, for defense systems. Um, so the cho- it, it would have it would seem you know why wouldn't you use two six two six two as um, as your functional safety standard? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason um, the reason for us was we weren't building a normal car. Mm-hmm. And we were build it. It will be um, for the next several years. We're not going to hit anything like major production. Mm-hmm. Um, we're planning factories building five thousand a year, which is it's absolutely small fry in the automotive world. Um, so these domain-specific functional safety standards uh, are uh, they're very specific to things like your uh, your uh, production volumes, um, mm-hmm. your, uh, I suppose your procurement, um, and uh, how large they are, how many people are in them. Um, so I mean, if we build five thousand cars a year, and they're two seaters, that's potentially ten thousand people in the cars every mm-hmm. year. You mm-hmm. can think of it something like that. Whereas mm-hmm. um, for something like uh, uh, DO178C, um, if you're building 
I don't know how many 747s Boeing make a year, but they seat, I don't know, maybe 400 people. <laughs> um, but they're, you know, they fly at 30 odd thousand feet at um, 550 miles an hour yeah. and so on. So the, the um, you know, the, the profiles are quite different. So they're tailored specifically um, to their, their domains. And it wasn't immediately obvious that we were the same, we had the same criteria yeah. as someone like Ford or Toyota or Nissan. Um, so we considered um, other other functional safety standards, um, and we came to two six at the end because it's a good standard. Yeah. Um, it's it is the automotive standard, and one of the things we'd be asked straight away um, would be, uh, "You're an automotive manufacturer. Why aren't you using the automotive standard for uh-huh. your, um, systems, uh, electrical, electronic, and software engineering?" And we'd have to explain, and it's a long question. Yeah, and unless there's significant benefits in using uh, other a different standard um then it, it you know it, it but it, it was a question for us interesting uh, and it was an interesting study in itself yeah so what what i'm hearing you say is that you know you are in such a kind of field or, or space that it is so new uh, we we had to think about it a little bit differently but at the same time you are still considered part of the automotive industry. So expectation would be to follow these standards. And one very quick point I want to make before I invite uh, David, I know you're waiting, is um, you described that, hey, it, uh, the ISO 26 may not be applicable uh, at different scales in different situations, those criteria. And I think this is a challenge that we face in the medical device industry also, right? Because our products are so diverse, different risk profile, different scales, different yes, of course, uh, ways. Yes. And I think the one way uh, they have taken care of that is having a more general practice standard for risk management and leaving the specific acceptability criteria out of the 14971 and holding top management responsible for establishing those criteria appropriate to their stakeholders. So I think that's that's a very interesting way our industry has gone. And uh, uh, I, I think there's a balance there. So uh, Dave, uh, David, I want to invite you. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Great. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Uh, perfect. Uh, thank you, Andy. Fascinating discussion. I'm I'm kind of formulating my question as I'm listening to you talk. It's related to the mandatory nature of some of these standards. It it sounded from the way you were talking that there was some choices to make as to which standards you were going to comply with. And and maybe this is a question you can jump into as well, Naveed, but in the medical device industry, a lot of these standards are required. And, and I'm just wondering what how that makes a difference. Andy, you want to just uh, go first and then sure, I'll yeah. share some thoughts on um, that. Well, first of all, David, congratulations on on a fabulous first name. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> it works both ways. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I've only got first names. Um, as far as I understand, uh, ISO two six is not mandatory, um, but in my experience, um, often the questions about why you didn't do something are much harder than the doing of the thing. <laughs> so, uh, and it's. Um, of course, we know. We, we all know that. And uh, in this in this industry, we need a functional safety standard. We could, if we wanted to, um, just engineer our way through it, and you know, it would probably be okay. But for the times it's not, um, then it's it's a lot easier 
to figure out why and to get to the truth if you've been if you've followed a, a functional safety standard. So I don't think I don't think it's mandatory that we do it. Yeah. That said, I don't quite know, um, but it's. Uh, I think it would be we'd be absolute fools if we didn't. There's yeah. a huge amount of expertise and experience, uh, and it's all you know. It's all very well for me to to be critical of certain parts of it, but mm. I think to do something better would be enormously difficult. Yeah. So. My, I, my approach is, it's brilliant. I just want to use it and get what I can from it. I would say the same thing, David, uh, that uh, I think people have same uh, same perception of ISO 14971 as well. That is mandatory. It's legally required. No, it is a state-of-the-art consensus standard. It's a good idea to do it, to use it. But no one will take you to court if you didn't do it. So I think mm -hmm. the point here is that if you do risk management better than everybody else in the world that you think your way is better than the standard then maybe you should be part of the standard development too right standard is the way yeah, to absolutely. progress our make our make our society go forward so i hope that uh, clarifies the discussion and i say this to uh, uh, folks in my training courses that uh, it's a good idea for you to do it but if you have a better idea you know <laughs> nobody's stopping you from that as well uh Christopher, yeah. welcome. Uh, thanks for joining, and uh, I want to invite you to share your thoughts. Please unmute your mic. Chris, can you can you hear me? Okay, we'll give him uh, we'll give him a moment there. Uh, so, uh, David, does does that make sense to you? Uh, I hope that sort of answered your questions or or not. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I, and if I can summarize and maybe get your comments. So it seems to me that the reason for choosing to comply with these standards, at least part of the reason would be obvious, a business reason to lower your risk or <laughs> to potentially improve your safety. <laughs> that seems obvious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because of course, it, is, it is considered yeah. to be state of the art. There's a reason why we practice state of the art because it makes life easier. Everybody has done so much work and we advance the field together. Uh, Chris, go ahead. I, I think you are ready yeah. to share what you have in mind. Go ahead. Can you please. hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's interesting that uh, that I, I joined uh, this uh, this particular um, Friday chat because um, I'm a veteran myself in the fuel cell industry. I spent uh, the first seven years of my career in systems engineering for fuel cell systems for automotive um, applications and stationary power. So Excellent. Um, it's, uh, um, I worked with a variety of uh, large um, industry players on um, development of PEM fuel cell systems um, for automotive applications, starting in the early, uh, actually in the late, late nineties, going way back. Um, but um, so I, this looks like a great uh, car. And uh, so I, I want to uh, applaud you, Andy, and hope that it's uh, <laughs> It's a it's a success, um, and uh, well, one of the things that um, I wanted to just mention with respect to risk and with respect to functional safety is that six two three zero four is the medical device standard for software development, software develop, um, development life cycles, and it's actually based on six one five zero eight. So there is yeah. some um, connection yeah. there, yes, and as we know, six two three zero four is also a risk standard, just like fourteen nine seventy one is. Um, it, it it addresses risk management, so. There's some, there's some, uh, you know, cross pollination there, um, and uh, but I would also say that six one five zero eight is a good standard for medical device practitioners, mm -hmm. medical device engineers, and, and quality practitioners to look at because 
you can learn a lot from that from that standard um, with respect to functional safety and 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 take those learnings over into your own space. That is that's awesome, that's great, Chris. Great. That's awesome that you shared that. And I think I want to highlight a point here is that when we have a compliance mind, when we have a compliance focus, we would say, let me just do that because that's what I think is required. And what you just mentioned, Chris, that, you know, many people will do 62304 for software, but you're mentioning, hey, there's something else that exists parallel to it. There's another standard that could be relevant. And when you have a safety mindset, I think you will probably grow, uh, go broader and do the right things because these are all all good standards. Uh, Ed, you are requesting to speak, so I'm going to bring you on here. Uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, I want to, you know, just uh, a spoiler alert. Chris, you're going to be a guest very soon. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm looking forward to talking to you about these topics in detail. Uh, congratulations on completing Boston again. This is this is amazing. You you did the Boston Marathon, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yes, exactly. Yes, thank and you. And by the way, Chris did it for a good cause. He's uh, he's raising funds for a very good cause as well. So from Mass Pioneer, check out my profile. Yep. Um, and you'll see. Yep. So we have you know we have a we have a group of folks who are so interesting to talk to, and I appreciate you guys being a part of this conversation. I can't wait to talk to you, Chris, in a couple of weeks from now. So, guys, uh, keep an eye on that announcement coming up soon. Ed, uh, welcome. Go ahead. Please share what you have in mind. Oh, yes. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, presentation. I mean, I'm glad you put it together. Uh, one thing um, I heard in here was uh, we've got all these other standards that do risk. Well, in medical devices, 14971 is designed as a, um, I guess, a catch-all, that'd be one way of saying it, where all of these risk analysis from 62304, 60601, uh, 62366, all of the standards need to all be brought, brought together into 14971 because 14971 is a device standard and it includes all of the aspects of the device. And so... At, at the uh, eighth clause in there, we do an overall residual risk evaluation. And that's where we gather the risk from all of the different aspects of the product, whether it be AI or biocompatibility or software or whatever. They all have to be analyzed at the overall stage. So we need to bring together the results of all the risk analyses from all of the various standards that are used in developing the product so that we have a true overall residual risk. In other words, um, what we have to remember is we're looking at, with 14971, what the patient and the user sees, mm -hmm. and they're gonna see the results of the system, mm -hmm. the entire product, not these individual aspects. So um, uh, I think that's something that we sometimes overlook. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a great different point. Groups yeah, the different groups of people that are working on their part, they're focused on what they do. But at some point, we need to bring the whole device together because that's what our patient, our user sees. And and then I think that, we would we would expect uh, you know us internally to look at all applicable standards, right? Yes, and correct. Then we, that would I think ISO fourteen nine seventy one is. Is brilliant in that perspective. That's not that prescriptive. That hey, here's a list. Do it, and you are done. 
Unfortunately, no. many people look at 14971 that way, Ed. I, I know that's a practice. Oh, yes. But the intent is, intent is do risk management right, which means yeah. look at everything that is applicable. So yeah. I, I know we have a, we can talk uh-huh. about this a lot. And that's actually one of the things I'm trying to get across through our conversations is that, you know, uh-huh. let's think about risk from uh-huh. this point of view that we do things right. Let's do them yeah. right. So um, anything else, guys? Uh, I know we are hitting the you know thirty minute mark here, but uh, anybody else from the audience who would like to participate? Okay, if not, um, just a couple of quick you know housekeeping announcements before I invite Andy to share his uh, closing thoughts. Uh, guys, if you miss these events, they are recorded, and you can find a recording with an article actually summarizing key points on my newsletter and you can find the link to my newsletter in the event here every event announcement i put a link you can go check it out and uh, you know subscribe or not subscribe but you can find these articles and recordings on my uh, newsletter because that's the way we can capture this knowledge that we are generating right now with some analysis and the second thing is that you don't even have to wait for a formal announcement for these events if you love them Block your uh-huh. calendar for 11 a.m. Eastern every Friday because we are going to be talking every Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern. And that way you will know, hey, at this time, we can go have an interesting conversation. Uh, with that, I want to thank all of you for attending, guys. And uh, uh, David, Chris, and Ed sharing your thoughts. Andy, I want to invite you to just share your closing thoughts. I think it was a really good comment you made earlier, Naveen, that um, the way we push society forward is by developing standards. And clearly, um, as, as Chris said, uh, 61508 is the generic standard. Uh, my understanding is it's from that standard that the domain-specific standards were developed. Um, so there's clearly, I mean, the aims are the same, uh, and clearly there's huge overlap between them. Uh, so I think if we're able to, if we're able to meet like this and discuss improvements, discuss thoughts, then a little body of knowledge will build. And if that at some point can be used to make a development and improvement in any standard, I think the chances are that it will find a way of rippling through the other standards as well for the other domains. And it could be uh, using of new techniques or a, a different um, a different paradigm, like for example, using uh, agile instead of waterfall, something like that. Or it, yeah. it could be just a, a completely new set of thinking that we, we're yet to appreciate. So I think let's uh, let's carry on these conversations. It's um, like I said, it's the highlight of the end of my week. Oh, I appreciate. So it's uh, I mean, whether whether that means I, I should get get out more and have more friends, I don't know. <laughs> well, you have so many friends here in the audience, guys. Connect with each other, network. That's also uh, another sort yes, of absolutely. objective of these uh, discussions. And finally, I want to say, you know, anyone in the audience, like you know, David uh, and Andy, you you kind of um, you know, see, I saw said your last name as your first name. Uh, Andy, you you were in the audience and you you were you accepted my invitation to come. So anybody in the audience who would love to come on as a guest speaker, no preparation needed, no work. All you need is some time and connect and you know just yes. be able to share your your thoughts because all of us have things that we can share. So please reach out to me if you are interested. Just send me a message through LinkedIn and I'll be very happy to chat with you. Uh, Maybe arrange a time for you to come to these events. Guys, uh, 
it has been fascinating. I love it. We can have more and more conversations like these in the future. Thank you, everybody, for joining today. And uh, everybody have a good weekend. We will connect again next week. Bye-bye. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Thanks all. Thank you.